It's really hard to go to a team of engineers that are used to having like clear data and clear models and you know ways of thinking that we've always done and say, no, I, I need you to tear all that up and I need you to think about it in a totally different way. Climate resilience may sound easy, but it's actually incredibly challenging. I'm Shale Khan, a partner at Energy Impact Partners, and this is The Interchange. So I'm not normally one to do this, but I want to read you something that I myself wrote. It feels a little bit navel-gazy, I'll admit, but I've heard Bill Simmons do it enough times on podcasts that I feel slightly less weird about it. I wrote this in November 2019. Here's the quote. Here's my bet. I think we're on the cusp of a cultural transformation, one in which the idea of investing in resilience gains mainstream status for anyone who owns something worth protecting. End quote. I wrote that a year after Northern California, where I live, had experienced the campfire, which was the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history. And that fire, of course, was sparked by equipment that was owned by Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E, the largest utility in California and one of the largest in the country. I don't want to try to get into the specific cause of that fire or any of the other wildfires. They're too complex and there's too much ongoing litigation to parse out the specific impacts at the moment. But what has become abundantly clear over the past few fire seasons in California, Northern California especially, is that PG&E and really most of California had not been prepared for how climate change would affect wildfire risk. In other words, we hadn't yet baked in our culture of climate resilience. Now, imagine your job was to be in charge of climate resilience at PG&E. And imagine that you started that job two weeks before the campfire. That is what happened to Heather Rock, who is our guest this week. Her title is literally Director of Climate Resilience at PG&E. It's hard to imagine a more politically charged yet vital role. And since I wrote that article, of course, we've had more and larger fires up and down the West Coast. We've had a cold snap in Texas that led to a week of power outages. We've had record floods in the Midwest, polar vortexes hitting the East Coast. Needless to say, the culture of resilience is needed now more than ever. So how do you actually build it? My conversation with Heather. Heather, welcome. Thanks, Jill. Excited to be here. Excited to have you. Uh, so let's start with a bit of uh, relevant personal background on you, which is you joined PG&E in October 2018, two weeks before the campfire, which is the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history that was sparked by a, a faulty PG&E transmission line. And you were hired as the director of climate resilience two weeks before that happened. What was that like? What were the first few weeks at PG&E like for you? It was a really intense time. I I had just started a new job. I had also just found out I was two months pregnant. Um, so a lot was going in in my mind at that point. I uh, just started a new job in a new city. I was commuting somewhere differently. Everything was sort of upended. And when I look back on that time, you know, I'm sort of reminded. You know, I grew up in Southern California, where fires were not. There, there were nothing new, right? I had friends in high school who lost their homes. I 
I remember, you know, driving to work once in San Diego, I couldn't, you know, I had to go home because I couldn't see anything. But with this fire, I remember looking outside my window and I couldn't see my neighbor's trees. And it was just so, it was such, so it was much more intense than, than I had ever experienced. And it was this time when there was just so much uncertainty over what was happening. We were all experiencing it, experiencing what had just, what was happening, right? For multiple weeks. And there was just so much uncertainty, I guess, of what was going to happen to the company, what was going to happen to the leadership. What did it mean for my role? And in retrospect, when I think about the impact that that had on me, and I think a lot of my coworkers, it it was really a wake-up call. And I imagine it's a wake-up call that a lot of people in Texas must be feeling right now. It's a wake-up call that I imagine a lot of people in New York had after Superstorm Sandy. And it's that moment where you realize climate change is not this thing that is decades out in the future that I don't have to think about all the time. It's something that's here and it's now. And we just immediately just sprung into action to say, how do we just catch up to the environment of today? And so what were you actually hired to do? What does it mean to be the director of climate resilience at PG&E? And did that, did that definition change two weeks after you started or does it remain the same? It's, it's changed a lot in my book. I, I had come from oil and gas, I, so I wasn't a utility expert. So I already had this learning curve of figuring out how how decisions are made in utilities, what the regulatory environment is like, what the company culture is like, which is totally different in the utility sector than oil and gas, as you and I think a lot of your listeners know. And then there was this added urgency of of this huge climate change risk that was upon us. And also the the need of my role was to think about not just today and the weather of today, but that climate of the future. And it, you know, it, it was really challenging because I'm, I'm trying to get to know people and a lot of people are really distracted, right? They're really focused on what had just happened. What does the company need to do to make sure that this never happens again? How do we catch up to the climate and weather conditions of today? And so a lot of my first few months was focused on just understanding what was going on and, and who are the people I need to talk to and get to know. And also to start having conversations with about, I get that this is, this is the number one problem that we are facing right now. Wildfire is, but once we, once we get our bearings and we get a handle on this, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's coming around the corner that we also need to be thinking about. I, I, I see my job as I think really like a translator. I am not a climate scientist and I'm not an electrical engineer, but I can, I can see the problems that we have in terms of how we make decisions and how we need to be making decisions. And I try to bridge that gap of understanding how do we need to change our decision-making so that we're thinking about the future conditions and, and different priorities that we have of the way that we operate the business. And I sort of insert myself into that and try to just make that bridge. Is it fundamentally what you're supposed to be doing predominantly, um, to understand the physical risk to PG&E's infrastructure driven by climate change in the future, the potential risk, and then to figure out how to mitigate that risk via decision support and different planning, via additive resilience, whatever it might be. But is that basically the idea? 
Yeah, it's, you know, and I think you, you and Kate Gordon talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, right? And you talked about the difference between physical risk and transition risk. And, you know, we've, we've all been focusing a lot on transition risk and stranded assets and reducing greenhouse gases. But the other side of that coin is everything we need to do to pre- prepare for the realities of what that really translate, what that really translates into on the ground. So yes, it's about that, that interplay of emissions turns into higher temperatures and higher temperatures has impacts on weather systems, extreme events, sea level rise, drought, subsidence, changes in our snowpack. Like these are all the things that I'm thinking about and then trying to work with our engineers and our asset strategy folks about, okay, this is what the system is today. And this is what it's going to need to look like in the future, given that we're, we have assets. They're going to be in the ground operating for the next 50, a hundred years. So we have to think about not just the, the weather conditions that they're operating in today, but how do we plan them, design them, operate them and so that they can function over that entire asset life and the, and the changing climate conditions around that. You know, you'd think on the outside that utilities and actually oil and gas as well would be particularly well equipped to understand and mitigate climate risk because they are industries that think long term more than most, right? If you're an oil and gas company doing exploration, you're thinking in terms of potentially decades before that bears fruit. And who know, you know, if you're drilling, you're expecting that to bear fruit over the course of decades. If you're a utility, like you said, you're putting infrastructure in place that should continue to live for if it's a generation facility, could be 20, 30, 50 years. If it's transmission distribution, it could be even longer. So you could imagine that that long-term mindset would put uh, energy companies at a at an advantage in thinking about climate risk and climate resilience. Has that been your experience? I totally agree with you that there's a lot of long-term thinking. And that's why I like the energy sector. Um, it's because, you know, oil and gas utility companies, they're, they're invested in communities and they're invested in the places that they're, they're working in. But for me, it's, it's like a whole mindset change, right? Because if, if I go to someone and I'm like, okay, let's, let's plan this, this asset, this hydro asset, right? So it's going to function over 50 years. The first thing people usually do is say, okay, let's go call it meteorology and we'll get all the historical records of rainfall in that area. And then I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, we don't want that because that whole history, that whole record we have is, I don't want to say it's garbage because it's important to understanding the future, but it's not going to tell us anything. It, it really tells us, you know, the average of things that happened in the past. It doesn't tell us what's going to happen in the future. And getting people to think about that differently is, is actually really hard. Um, and then when you, when you try to talk about, okay, this is a, this is a climate model and here's all the range of probabilities that, that, you know, what our future might be. It, it's really hard to shift that thinking. So it's, it's first, you know, let's not rely on that old data. We need to throw a lot of that old data out. We need to throw a lot of that, that old thinking out. And now it's like, okay, here's a new model and how are we going to use it? And then it creates all these new questions of things like risk tolerance or what do we, what do we see as the future of greenhouse gas emissions? And it, it becomes really complicated. And I think we're getting better at it, but you would be surprised at how few utilities and oil and gas companies are thinking about it like this. 
So let's talk about some specific examples. The you know the obvious one when you hear PG&E and climate resilience or climate risk right now, obviously you're thinking about wildfires predominantly, and you know I presume wildfire is a core part of your mission, perhaps not the immediate like what are, you know what is with the immediate risks to our infrastructure this year or next year to wildfires, which I know that, like a lot of people at PG&E are focused on, um, but perhaps the longer term, like how does, you know, wildfire risk affect planning and things like that. But I actually want to talk about a couple of other examples that are not about wildfires, because I think they show the breadth of the types of things that, that companies that own physical infrastructure need to be thinking about with regard to climate change. So let's start by talking about heat. Um, we have already had some examples in PG&E territory of heat wave driven blackouts. We had this last August, actually, where we had, you know, kind of like rolling brownouts during a, a summer heat wave. Um, there, some equipment failed in near San Jose and there were blackouts there. This is, you know, obviously blackouts during, uh, during heat waves are particularly challenging leaves people without air conditioning and um, critical infrastructure needs to needs to be up in hospitals and all that kind of stuff. So what um, what was the backstory around last August's event? And then more broadly, you know, how do you think about the risk to PG&E from heat? I think there's a lot of parallels that we can draw between what happened in Texas with extreme cold and what we can talk about what with what happened with, with California with the heat storm. Um and, and going back in time, like this wasn't the first heat storm we had. The the one that we had in July of 2006 was actually, I think, the worst heat storm we've had in in California history. But this one was very, very close. And there were, there were two sides of this coin, right? One one was that issue of resources. Did we have enough enough energy in the system that could get you know through our through our system to customers? And a lot of that was what most Californians experienced, right, with the rolling brownouts that. That, that Kaiso had ordered all the the IOUs to undertake, and the other side of that was the equipment failures itself. And a lot of electric equipment is really sensitive to heat, right? There's the heat that goes through through your wires, right, through your equipment, because customers are cranking up their ACs, um, they're they're staying inside. You also, in, you know, add on the fact that a lot of people are at home; they weren't in big offices, um, so you just had changes in the patterns of of people increasing their electricity usage and where they're increasing their electricity usage. And then you have the the heat itself and the ambient condition, conditions and the fact that we didn't have a cooling off overnight, which is usually when your equipment gets kind of a break and it can cool down and then it's ready for the next day. And we didn't have that during one of these multiple heat waves. And so what we saw was a number of failures of, of you know, if you look outside on your pole, you'll sometimes see that those rounds um, like cylindrical um, pieces of equipment and those are transformers and they're filled with, you know, an oil or a substance and they're sensitive to heat. And a lot of this just failed. Um, you know, they, they, you know, weren't designed for the load that was there. The load was bigger than it was supposed to be. So, you know, in retrospect, we look back at what happened and there's, there's questions about things like, how do we forecast how load is going to change in response to heat and, and consumer demand? You know, more people probably went out and bought air conditioners that week in areas where historically you didn't need them. And I think there's been a huge increase in this as well in places like San Jose or on the coast in Oakland, for example, or Berkeley, where you didn't historically need an AC and now you probably 
you know, either went out and bought one if you could, or you're thinking about maybe investing in one for the future. And so we're going to have changes in the way that we have to design, you know, heat sensitive electrical equipment to keep up with these changes. Um, and I think it's the same way that folks might be thinking about it in, in Texas, right? If demand is going to be shifting in different ways and equipment is going to be needed to be more resilient to certain conditions, we have to change the way we design that equipment too. So those those are the big stories, or, or I guess the big the takeaways that we get from an event like that. Does that affect how you think about procurement, or how PG&E could be should be thinking about procurement today of new equipment? So you're going to buy new transformers, for example. Should you be attaching new specs to those transformers to allow them to withstand greater heat, even than we we saw last August, because we're looking ten years into the future when it's going to get even worse, presumably. Yeah, one of the the projects that were working on that I'm really excited about is, is working with the folks that actually design these transformers. And when we, when we dug into this and it's really interesting, what they had done is after the 2006 heat wave, they took, you know, the hottest temperatures in a couple areas and they said, okay, this is going to be our max capacity, right? That we're going to design everything to. And following this event in August, when we, we met, what I wanted to get across was, okay, that was a really good start. But if you're going to put in a transformer that's going to last 30, 50 years, let's not think about the heat wave of 2020 to update it to. Let's think about the heat wave of 2050 or the heat wave of 2080, because it's going to be a lot worse, right? We're going to have more, we're going to have more heat waves. We're going to have more intense heat waves. So we want our system to be able to perform in, under those circumstances because you know, it, it's also sort of a, a change in philosophy of how you run your system and what you're trying to optimize, right? I think a lot of utilities historically have thought about, okay, how many customer hours am I out and how quickly can I get people back on? But if you if you start thinking about it in terms of a mindset of resilience and thinking about what it actually means for the customer, if, if your customers don't have power and it's five degrees out or it's 120 degrees out, that's that's not just inconvenience anymore, Right. So we, we want to design our system. So we're thinking about those extreme events of the future to make sure that we can provide a really critical service to people during those extreme events. So we talked about extreme heat. Let's, um, let's talk about one more example of a climate risk that pg e has already faced and will continue to face, which is sea level rise. Um, of course, pg e is uh, coastal. You have a bunch of the Northern California coast as well as the Bay. And uh, you described, as we were chatting earlier this week, you described an example that I didn't know um, about a sort of real-time climate risk driven by sea level rise on the bridge that connects the East Bay, the southern part of the East Bay, to the peninsula, which is where Silicon Valley is. So what's that example? So last February 2020, we got a call from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and it was about a, a levee that surrounds the PG&E's Ravenswood substation. And this substation is located pretty much in the bay, right off the northern side of the Dumbarton Bridge. Uh, and this bridge is the, if you're familiar with the bay, there's a series of bridges that connect east to west. And this is the southernmost bridge probably the one that's most vulnerable to sea level rise. And we got this call and they said, well, you know, we're responsible for this, this levee out here. It got damaged in this wind event and we're going to repair it, but there's only about three to five years left of, of this levee. So we're going to have to figure out, well, what is our long-term solution? 
We could build a concrete seawall around the substation. We could lift up some of the, some of the, you know, the components inside of it that are, that are vulnerable to water. Um, but what we wanted to do was figure out a solution that worked not just for us, but for Caltrans and, and for the community and the local government. And right about this time, FEMA had announced its Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program. And it's, it's a pretty cool program. It, the idea is it's a pre-disaster mitigation program that will essentially give money so that we can prevent things from like, you know, the substation going underwater from happening before they occur. Uh, you save money, you, you save, hopefully you save lives by doing this kind of work. And so we approached the, the city of Menlo Park and the San Francisco Joint Powers Authority, which had a, a number of projects to deal with sea level rise in the area and said, do you want to partner with us on one of these FEMA grants? And we, we decided that, you know, we, instead of spending, you know, $10 million on a seawall, we would commit $10 million to a grant application where we could get a match from, from FEMA so that we could build a solution that not only worked for our substation, but it worked for the community. Um, we were also able to, we approached Facebook. They liked the idea. They threw in some money too. And, also worked with a number of the local environmental organizations that are interested in, in you know, re- restoring a lot of the, the old salt ponds that dot, that dot the South Bay. We're using a pretty innovative nature-based solution of building this ecotone levee, which is a, a horizontal levee and it mimics the natural shoreline. And by doing this and in this way, we're not only going to protect our substation, um, which serves like hundreds of thousands of customers in this area. So it going down is just not an option for us. But it also allows the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and, and other folks to start restoring some of these former salt ponds that were really waiting on us to figure out our solution before they could start doing this. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that, you know, this, this grant wins, you know, wins. Uh, we'll find out in a few months, but, you know, we're really committed to this. We want, we want to work with the local community. We want to do the right thing here. And we're excited of, of using this as a new model for, for us. All right. So stepping back, um, I think what a lot of what, what big companies that have physical assets all need clearly is a playbook to, uh, achieve climate resilience. Um, and I'm wondering, how you think about building that playbook specifically to PGE, I suppose, but you know, what are, what are the steps? What are the, the tools that you need in a toolbox? If you're any large organization that has assets to protect. And I guess secondary question to that, like, is it easy to get those tools today or is it, are there still gaps in what's readily accessible to you? Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack here, Shale. Um, so the first thing is you need to understand the nature of your problem. And to do that, you need a lot of data and you need a lot of tools and you need a lot of climate data, right? And so the, that first step is just understanding w- what's going to happen where I live that's relevant for my company. Am I worried about sea level rise? Am I worried about wildfire? Am I worried about heat? And you need to have an understanding of what what those vulnerabilities are. And then the second really to me is, you have to understand how decisions are made in your company. And you can have all this great data, but if it's not being used in, in decisions, then it's really, you know, it's probably a more of a nice to have than a need to have. One of the things 
you know, I really think about a lot is, you know, how do we mainstream this kind of data into decision making so that your asset manager or your design standards engineer or your strategy people are, are thinking about not just the short term or the past, but they're thinking about the, the futures as well. And, and I think that third tool is probably like getting on your soapbox and making people know that this is an issue, right? I spend a lot of time doing brown bags holding meetings, just letting people know what this is, because, you know, especially for, for us for the last two years, we've been really, really focused on wildfire, right? But we know that if you look back four years ago, all anyone could talk about in California was drought. In 10 years, it might be that all anyone can talk about is sea level rise. So we have to, we have to think bigger picture about all these things so that extreme weather isn't unprecedented anymore. It's expected. And that expectation and, and that data that you have is then built into the decisions that you're making today. So if you're trying to implement that playbook right now for the first time in, in any organization, like what is the biggest gap? What's the, what's the, the biggest roadblock that you're going to face in that journey? I think the, the first is, is we have a bias, I think just as humans, right? To, to look to the past as that predictor of the future, right? Isn't there's, there's that maxim, like history always repeats itself. And when it comes to climate change, it's really not the case. Um, and I think when you're dealing with, with uncertainty, it's really hard to go to a team of engineers that are used to having like clear data and clear models and, you know, ways of thinking that we've always done and say, no, I, I need you to tear all that up. And I need you to think about it in a totally different way. And it, it, it can just take a couple iterations before it, like that light bulb goes on and people get it. And then you're introduced to a whole host of like different questions, right? Like about risk tolerance and, and how you want to run the system and how you think about your, your customers, right? Um, but I, I think it's just a, a human thing. Like if you look at just everyone's reaction to what happened in Texas a few weeks ago, everyone said, Oh, this was unprecedented. It was not like, this happened to Texas just a few years ago or the heat wave last year. That was not unprecedented. We had a heat wave in 2006 and the climate models show it's going to happen again. And I, I think to get through to people, you had to be really good with really compelling data and visuals of just, this is, this is the range of possibilities that we are going to be living with. And I almost feel like it comes down to a, like a sense of purpose of like, why are we here? Why do we work in this system? Why are we at this utility in this crazy time? And it's, it, I think I really get through to people when it, when I say, look, like we're, we're making these investments in this system for not just for ourselves, because we're probably not going to be around by the time that things get really bad, but our kids will and our grandparents, our grandkids will. Right. And so let's make those investments today. So that we're planning a system that works for them in the future, but getting to there can be really hard. Yeah, I think the whole notion of um, things being unprecedented, or you often hear like this event was a one in a hundred year event, or whatever. I mean, there's two problems with those things. One, often, as you said, it's not true. Like they're not actually unprecedented; they're just rare. And two, the whole point of climate change is that the things that were unprecedented will become precedented. 
Like there will be precedent for all these things. You have to anticipate that. And just building that resilience mindset, building the the acceptance of of, you know, a band of risk tolerance and so on. That that seems it's a cultural challenge that is by no means unique to utilities or any specific kind of organization, but is broadly true as we try to grapple with the physical impacts of climate change across like a host of sectors. Yeah. And I think of all the the times people said, oh, I can't wait for 2020 to be over. Let's get to the next year. And we might look back at 2020 and say, that was the best year we had this decade. That's, from a climate perspective. From a climate sure. perspective. I mean, <laughs> Hopefully yeah, from other ways. not in a bunch of other ways. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Um, just to, I guess, to wrap up, like, what do you think is missing from how the media portrays the corporate shift to climate resilience? Right. What What is um, on the outside? What does it look like companies are doing and how does that differ from what companies are actually doing? You know, I'll be I'll be honest. I, I don't know if it's a, the media is not covering the right story because I don't know if the story is there yet. I think everyone has been so on board in the last five, 10 years about, okay, we're going to deal with the climate problem and we're going to reduce our emissions, right? And everybody has their science-based targets and they're figuring out how to align with the Paris Agreement and, you know, they're doing all this work and that's great. I, I don't see a lot of discussion or I don't see enough discussion in, in the private sector about really outside of California too, about, okay, how are we going to prepare communities and our infrastructure and our systems for the physical risk? I think California is doing a really good job with that. Um, some of it has been state mandated, but they've also been supplying a lot of really important data and tools. But if you look across the rest of the country, you know, there, there's this conversation isn't happening nearly broadly enough. And it typically only is in reaction to some extreme event. So there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to, you know, in the, on the, on the private sector side. Well, appreciate that you are out there doing that work every day. Uh, Heather, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks. And Shale, if I can say one more thing that Please. has sort of been on my mind in, in this world and, you know, it was this interesting. Is your, this is your soapbox. Get on it. <laughs> I'm going to get on my soapbox for, for a last minute. You know, we, we've been hearing a lot about, you know, Biden's building back better and a lot of, you know, hope for this infrastructure bill. And when I think about what building back better, whether it's your, your utility or a oil and gas sector or, or a local community, one of the things I am really concerned about and I'm hopefully will, will change is that, you know, going back to like, how do you do this? You need data, right? And the, the whole reason we can have this conversation is that in California, the state has spent a lot of money on research and then making that research available so that a local government or a utility like ours can have that. But we need that more than just for California, right? Because the way I see it going right now is that if you are a well-resourced corporation or a, a, you know, a locality with money, you can go out and get private, privately funded climate data. And that's just going to exacerbate a lot of the existing inequities that we have when we think about disadvantaged, vulnerable communities and energy structure, you know, energy and critical infrastructure. And so we, we need to be thinking about making this data available, not just for Californians and for, you know, folks like us, but so that if you're a, a city planner in Missouri or Florida, you also have this data too. And so I think there's a real role that 
our national labs, that DOE, that others could and should take so that we're not going to exacerbate existing inequities so that the folks who can afford to become resilient are the only ones who do. So that's my, that's my last bit on the soapbox and I'll step down now. Good, good soapbox ending. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Shell. This was a lot of fun. Heather Rock is the Director of Climate Resilience at PG&E. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Daniel Waldorf is our senior producer. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. How'd we do today? Tweet at us at at Interchange Show or send us an email to postscriptaudio at gmail.com. Also, give us a rating or a review. Share the podcast with a friend. It helps other people learn about the show. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. The Interchange.